Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the book of Revelation. We're currently in chapter 2 at verse 1. Hi, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today for this Bible study. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Revelation where it says this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So then, chapter 2 and verse 1 begins what is, in essence, a new section of this book. The first section being, of course, uh, chapter 1. And uh, we use a key phrase or key phrases out of chapter 1 as our outline, and that is the things which you have seen is uh, part of that outline, and that is chapter 1. Chapter 2 begins the things which are, and that is uh, these letters to the seven churches. And... uh, and all all of its content. Then in chapter 4 begins the things which will take place. And uh, we'll get to that, of course, uh, all in due time. But uh, right now, uh, we, we want to connect the fact that uh, uh, John has seen this image. And this image is, uh, is in essence, uh, Jesus himself, not only risen from the dead in resurrected form, but glorified and ascended to heaven back to his former glory uh, in which he appeared even to Daniel and others uh, previous to his incarnation. And uh, yet it is the same person. There is not uh, a division between the earthly Jesus and the and the eternal Christ spirit. Uh, they are one person, and that person is uh, Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the Messiah, and Jesus of Nazareth was, was he, and uh, he he has he is standing among the the uh, seven golden lampstands which he he says are the churches that's the last thing he said to John in chapter 1 in the last verse uh, and he also holds uh, the seven stars in his right hand and that's the way he introduces himself in chapter 2 verse 1 uh, and and this is the way that Jesus uh, begins all of his letters by introducing himself with certain qualities or certain things that comprise his 
his character, and he brings that part of his character to play uh, upon uh, uh, the individual churches and their particular problems or their particular strengths or their specific weaknesses that he's called them to. It is important that each one of them recognize that Jesus is big enough to solve those problems, and he does so by introducing himself in a specific way, not that he has changed or not that he drops the other dimensions of his character out of uh, out of uh, the way, but, but rather he emphasizes these things as he goes along to the various churches. And we're, we're about to examine all seven of those churches in these seven cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And each one of these churches, each one of these letters comprise their own content, and yet uh, there are certain things in common, and we've just uh, we've talked about that uh, a little bit in the beginning. First of all, the commission to write is all already there in chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. That's the commission of, of uh John to be able to write. And in this case, Jesus is dictating the words. Now, some some uh, letters from the apostles and others are, uh, are written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And yet in this case, these seven letters are dictated specifically to say the exact words the way uh, uh, that Jesus dictates them down. And uh, that doesn't mean they have more authority. It just means they are directly uh, communicating so that uh, there is no confusion whatsoever uh, about the source of this. And uh, there is a character that's described about Jesus in each one of these letters. There's a commendation, at least in most of them, uh, and there is a confrontation, at least in most of them, uh, and there is a correction of that uh, confrontation in most of them. Then there is the call that uh, uh, ends the letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the call. It is in each one of these letters. Then there is that final challenge uh, to him who overcomes, and he finishes that overcoming statement and that overcoming promise to the overcomer. And uh, that is in each letter. So each letter has those seven components or at least most of them. And uh, we'll get to that as we get to each one of those letters. This is to the angel of the church. And uh, as we finished up uh, chapter one, Jesus holds these seven stars in his hand. There, uh, These stars evidently represent the, um, the angels of each church. And uh, that uh, demonstrates that not only Jesus's presence among the congregations, but he holds these messengers in his hand in a special way. Now, uh, we have explained uh, that we believe that those messengers may may be the, the local um, deliverer uh, of these messages. In other words, the courier that takes these letters to those churches, or it may actually be the reader uh, uh, of this letter in each congregation, because he started out by saying uh, with a promise that uh, 
that uh, blessed is he who reads and understands. So he gives a special blessing to the reader because there, there was a designated reader, evidently, in each congregation because they didn't have copies to hand out uh, uh, based on the, uh, uh, the copy machine in the, in the back office. Uh, they, they, they had their own copy, and uh, they read from that copy to the entire congregation, and that may exactly be uh, who this angel is because it may be a supernatural being that protects each congregation. I'm not denying that necessarily, but I'm just saying that uh, the term angel means messenger quite literally, and it could mean uh, messenger in this context without referring to a supernatural creature uh, or an angel the way we normally think of it. Uh, After all, Luke chapter 7, 24 uses the same Greek term, but it refers to the messengers of John. And, um, in uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 52, it says, and he sent messengers on ahead of him. And again, that's referring not to supernatural angels, but to actual human beings. But the word is used. The angelos word in the Greek appears in both of those contexts. So, um, so that could very well be what's involved in uh, each one of these letters uh, as they are read by the reader to the congregation. And um, so this is what he's writing to that congregation and to the one who's going to. And then he describes himself, Jesus describes himself, that is, uh, as the one who with the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He wants this church specifically to know that this is the component of his character that should strengthen them, that should give them comfort, that should give them a a special insight into what he's about to say and what he's about to compliment them on, as well as what he's about to challenge them on, all comes from this one who walks among them, whose presence is there, and whose protective hand is over uh, the leadership of that church uh, in whatever form that might take. And so it says, I know your deeds, he says, uh, and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. So this is written to the church, and the, the, uh, the word for church here, by the way, is not uh, a religious word in that day. In the Greek, it, uh, it is the term ekklesia, and it's a combination of two terms together. Ek means means out of, and kaleo means called, called out of. But the the term was used for any gathering, and especially any official gathering, like, for instance, a a town meeting or a town hall meeting. Um, Acts chapter 19, verse 32, uh, calls it an assembly, and it was just a civic meeting. In in fact, uh, it was in Acts chapter 19, verse 32, and and, uh, uh, some were shouting one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion. And it's talking about this city hall meeting. This uh, this town hall meeting uh, was uh, quite, uh, um, uh, quite upset. And, uh, and so uh, the term 
that we use in our English language as church originally uh, wasn't necessarily uh, associated with something religious activity, although Paul adapted it for for many regards and and all the other New Testament authors did the same to refer to the gathering of Christians, that assembly of believers. And he says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. You see, this church is a hardworking church. They have not let up. They have continued to uh, to work uh, in that community, in that town. Ephesus was a prominent town. It it, it housed the, the great temple of Artemis, or what uh, also was uh, the, that goddess was called Diana. Uh, and it was uh, the, the capital of the Roman province of Asia, what we now know as Western Turkey. It had a, a port uh, associated with that city, but it was, it was um, about a mile and a half or so inland uh, on, a, uh, on a, uh, a course of a river that uh, eventually got silted up. But in the meantime, it became a prominent place because of its access both to uh, land travel as well as to that port. But uh, Paul, uh, by the way, uh, visited that uh, church or, uh, for the longest uh, time of any churches. And uh, he had a special heart for the church at Ephesus. And um, in fact, on his way back to Syria, he had a special meeting on the beach at Miletus. He didn't even take the time to to uh, travel by boat inland or by boat upstream to the port at Ephesus. He stopped at Miletus instead and called for the elders, and they had a special meeting there. So this was a special church to the Apostle Paul, and uh, evidently John had taken over uh, after Timothy had run his course there in Ephesus as well. And now John is sending out this first letter to this church, a very prominent church in a very prominent city, and he has some things to say that uh, Jesus wants to tell them. And we'll be back right after this break. Before we go a little bit farther into this uh, letter and the contents of what Jesus wanted to communicate to this particular congregation, uh, some of you may have already realized that this this could actually be called Second Ephesians because uh, Paul already wrote one letter uh, to this particular church. But now Jesus is writing this letter to them as a collection of these seven letters. And... Um, 
Uh, it may be a little premature, but I'm going to let you in on, uh, on this uh, approach to these seven letters because of the fact that we have to make the observation that these particular churches are listed out in a certain order, and they are addressed in a certain way, of course. And, and yet, these were not necessarily, except for Ephesus, were not necessarily prominent churches in the grand scheme of things, not like the church at Jerusalem or the church at at Antioch or the church at Corinth or uh, definitely not uh, comparable to the church at Rome and and others like Philippians or Thessalonians or the church at Berea or any of those other uh, the those other churches could have been very prominent and maybe even more popular you might say in uh, in that particular culture and in the first century growth of evangelism and yet. Uh, Jesus chose these particular churches for a reason, I believe, uh, and that is so that they become representative letters to the church at large. That means these these seven churches represent a certain dimension to almost any congregation, or they may actually refer to certain phases that the church itself has gone through. I'm talking about the church globally on earth uh, since Jesus's uh, departure into heaven. And so that uh, these seven letters may represent seven various phases by which uh, the church on earth has gone through over the last uh, 2,000 years or so, you might say. But uh, we're going to set that aside uh, uh, right now and look at the fact that these seven letters can be applied to any church. They can be used as diagnostic tools. What kind of church am I attending? What kind of church is this church? Uh, what uh, what does this church need? What is its strengths? What is its weaknesses? And all of those things we can all glean from because they are written to all the churches. And uh, and that's exactly um, what he says. To wh- Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, not just to the Ephesus church in the Ephesus letter. But everybody got Ephesus letter, everybody got uh, Smyrna's letter, and everybody got everybody else's letter. And uh, that is a part of the makeup of these, these two chapters of uh, Revelation. So that gives you a little bit of a hint about, about what uh, perhaps these things uh, lend themselves to as we continue to study some of these details. So this church has a strength about it, and it is a, it is a strength of hard work. And uh, they uh, put in the time and, and the work to do God's work in that congregation, in that particular city. And uh, that took toil. It, it took a lot of perseverance because it, it wasn't easy. Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter nine verse eight, uh, Paul says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And that's exactly where this church was. They knew what it meant to carry out hard work and to do so even when things may not have been easy. But look at this. He's uh, his uh, uh, his. Um, 
focus goes to the fact that you cannot tolerate evil men, but you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. Because uh, evidently somebody uh, found out that uh, if you use the term apostle, then you see you got this extra uh, prestige, you got this extra um, authority, uh, and you could travel about and call yourself an apostle and and, and actually have control over people's lives. And uh, uh, that was what was going on, even in the first century. And uh, uh, Ephesus is being congratulated by the Lord of the churches by saying, you did a good job in calling these guys out. They're imposters. They're counterfeits. They're not true apostles just because they are willing to take on the title or take on the office or take on this, this special label doesn't make them special at all. It doesn't give them special authority just because they they have uh, some sort of uh, uh, courage to, to take the label. And so they call them out and, and Jesus compliments them on that and you found them to be false. Evidently, uh, they took them through some sort of a test to see if they were true apostles and found them uh, to not be true apostles at all. And uh, so Jesus congratulates them and he says, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. They have stuck it out. They've stuck it out through the hard times that characterize this church. But he says in verse 4, and here's where we, we get into uh, some of the uh, confrontation between Jesus and this particular church and what its weaknesses ha- have been. It says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And uh, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus predicts that because of lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. That's a prophecy that Jesus gave about the entire globe that would take on a certain worldview where they really do not love and they don't know what love is and uh, they've discarded uh, law and uh, because they've discarded all law and order and they've become lawless uh, and because the lawless has increased, then they truly do not know what love is at all. And uh, they've grown cold. Well, in this particular church, it uh, 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 Paul uh, Paul had uh, earlier in his his letter to Ephesus had says he complimented them. Uh, he says, having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. That's Ephesians chapter one verse fifteen. Uh, and uh, then he goes on in verse sixteen of saying, I mention you in my prayers. Uh, notice that that uh, love was a part of them. Uh, love was a part of this. Conversation congregation when Paul had written his letter to them about, uh, oh, 20 or 30 years before uh, Jesus composed this letter. And so there, things had changed. Uh, some things had gotten better, you might say. Some things had, had been strengthened, but other things had kind of left left lay on its own and wasn't an improvement at all. Uh, uh, Paul had said in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19, he talked about uh, that prayer and 
uh, in verse uh, 17 of that prayer, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That was Paul's prayer for this church. And evidently they had fallen short. They had forgotten, what was it? They had forgotten their first love. And that is their test. That is their stewardship now that has been delivered to them by John through uh, Jesus's instruction. They should now look again for their first love. Uh, Jesus said uh, uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 and 38, he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus gives this demand of loving him, of valuing him, putting value in him and what he means and priorities upon that relationship with him is to take certain uh, precedent over all other relationships. Either Even family relationships uh, uh, should not compete with our love for the Lord Jesus. Now, what's interesting as well is that uh, he says, <clears throat> just a moment, that you have lost your first love. Uh, Jeremiah had spoken earlier about uh, about the honeymoon love of Israel. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, verse 1 and 2, that's a, that's a tributary about this idea of first love all the way back in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in in the wilderness uh, through a land not sown. Uh, and, and this is in essence God reminding Israel, you once loved me as as a, as a newlywed. And uh, that's what's involved there in uh, Jeremiah. And that's exactly what this church has lost. It's They were faithful. They were true. They were persevering, but they had lost their honeymoon love for Jesus. And uh, that that is not a minor thing, you see. That is a major deal. And it says in verse 5, therefore, remember from where you've fallen. Put it in your mind of where you have been as a congregation, especially in the early days, how you shown your affection to each other, shown your affection to, to the Lord Jesus, to, showed your affection to the word of the Lord, and shown your affection to the value of your fellow people in that congregation, and that love has been lost. It's been somehow neglected. Well, don't neglect it anymore. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent. You should repent and come back. Do the deeds that you did at first. In other words, start practicing the very things that made you strong. It made you strong for the long haul, but now you've lost that uh, that practice of putting that value in one another and putting that love into the Lord Jesus. 
so he says, to repent. Uh, otherwise, uh, I'm going to have to remove the lampstand. Uh, and that is, that's the symbol of their testimony in the community uh, as, an, as a congregation, as a local church. That lampstand symbolized that. And uh, Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove it. So it's not a threat. It just says, uh, that's, uh, that's what's going to have to be because you're not going to be a good testimony for me, even though you have stood for the truth against false teachers, you have not loved the way you should be loving. He says, and yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And these were very special people, evidently, of, uh, uh, and they had a lot of wickedness and evil about them. But most of all, they liked to be in control of others. That's what that word means. The, uh, the um, ruler of the people, ruler of the ordinary people. And uh, evidently, these these were like uh love their power and love their their authority over the congregation or anybody who would submit to them and uh, uh, Jesus says I uh, I'm I'm glad you dissociated yourself from these people and he says he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so this is the invitation you see Jesus gives that invitation to every individual not just to the congregation as a church or as an organism or as a, an institution but he gives it to the individual If you're listening to what I'm saying, you're responsible for what you hear. And then he also says, to him who overcomes. How do we overcome? Well, we overcome by trusting Christ as our Savior. That's how we overcome. That's how we place ourselves in the position of always uh, facing the uh, heaven and being able to participate of, of this tree of life, the eternal life that Jesus has promised, the paradise of God, that is heaven. And that is the place that we anticipate. And that is the place that we go, not because of our good works, but because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. Uh, so are you saved? Are you Uh, trusting Christ as your Savior? Are you in a position of claiming that overcoming place that uh, he has provided for you? He's done the work. He uh, He has paid for the price of your eternal life. John 3.16 is an old verse, but it still says the same thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. There's the your overcomer, but have eternal life. There's your paradise, and there is your tree of life. John 10.10 says the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life life and have it abundantly. That's Jesus's promises to you as an overcomer, not because of your strength, but because of him doing a work in your heart. Father, thank you that you have given us your word to encourage and to challenge. We pray that we would respond as good listeners by repentance and saving faith in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock.